Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 8, Chapter 19, The Nipa Hut Colonel Felix Rojas paced the floor of Tony Briati's room in the Manila Hotel. He was in uniform now, but his visit, as he made quite clear, was not official. At least not yet. Rick had finished relating the story of how the Golden Skull had fallen into the hands of Lizada. Can't you just go to him and demand the skull? Rick asked. Rojas smiled sadly. If only it were that simple. Suppose two melees arrived at your Department of Defense and claimed that your Assistant Secretary of the Interior had stolen a valuable Indian necklace from an archaeological expedition. What do you think would happen? Rick knew perfectly well what would happen. They'd get thrown out, if they could get anybody to listen to them in the first place. Exactly. The situation is not particularly different, except that I'm sure we pay more attention to Americans here than you would to Malays in your country. After all, you owned us for nearly a half century. You warned us, Scotty said. Why? Rojas shrugged. I may as well be frank. I knew of Nangulat's visits to Lazada. In fact, I was present at one meeting. I knew that our esteemed assistant secretary was hungry for that buried gold. If I could prove some of the things I know about that man, he would no longer hold public office. He would be in jail for a very long time. My hands were tied, officially, but unofficially I tried to warn you. I could not come right out and denounce Lazada. Of course not, Tony agreed. We're grateful you were able to say as much as you did. Rojas nodded. Let us continue. After you flew back to Bontoc, what happened? Rick picked up the tail. Pilly Pill was on the mountain waiting. We dropped down and signaled for him to go to Bonwee in the jeep. Then we landed at Bontoc and picked up the other jeep. Chada became an Igorot again. He took the jeep and started for Bagueo right away while I stayed behind in Bontoc. I don't get the point of that, Rojas interrupted. Chada intended to follow Lizada or Nast, whoever had the skull. They were coming over the mountain in a fast station wagon, and there were only two routes they could possibly take, north to the Kalinga country or south to Baguio. There was no reason that they would go north, we didn't think so at least, so Chada started for Baguio knowing that they would probably catch up to him before the jeep reached the Baguio Gate. They were in so much of a hurry that they would not suspect the Igorot, who pulled to the side of the one-lane road to let them pass, which would make trailing them way easier. Very smart, Rojas said. Then your friends arrived at Bontoc late that afternoon, and you flew them back to Baguio, leaving Angel Monotoc to bring the truck. Yeah, of course we paid off Pillipil, Balaban, and the Igorots, who had guarded the plane. Dogbeat rode back with Angel. And you haven't heard from your Hindu friends since? No. Rojas picked up his cap. I would very much like to find Lazada with that golden skull in his possession. It would be a major service to the Philippines, because it would give the secretary and president positive grounds for his dismissal. I ask a favor of you. If you hear from your friend, will you let me know? First thing, Tony Briali promised. 
When the constabulary colonel had gone, the three washed up and went downstairs. Tony was restless, and Rick knew he wanted to get to work on the artifacts they had flown down to Manila. The Afugwe treasure, minus the skull, was under guard at the University Museum. Go on out to the museum, Rick said. You're restless, and I'm beginning to itch just watching you. Same here, Scotty agreed. Go, Tony. We'll wait here for word from Chada. I really would like to, Tony said. Maybe I will, if you'll let me know the moment the Chada comes. The boys promised to do so, and Tony departed. They found comfortable chairs in the lounge and ordered fresh limeades. Onhale should be arriving with the truck tomorrow, Scotty observed. Yeah, with dog meat. wonder if Chada will be back by then. I wish he'd let us know where he is, Scotty grumbled. For all we know, Lizada may have captured him and tossed him into Manila Bay. A waiter approached. Ask him where our limeades are, Scotty said. I'm thirsty, and I'm getting hungry. Again? We finished dinner less than an hour ago. Didn't seem like much of a dinner, Scotty explained. Can't get used to eating when the sun is high in the sky. I don't care what time it is. It should be dark when we're eating. Now it's dusk and I'm hungry. The waiter bowed. Phone call for you, Mr. Brandt, or Mr. Scott. Thank you. wonder who this could be. Chada? Scotty asked. That would be too much to hope. Besides, he sends notes whenever he can. He doesn't like the phone. But it was Chada. He gave them rapid instructions. Dress in dark clothing. Meet him at Paranaque, a town to the south, just below the airport. Hurry. Chada hung up. He had obviously been excited. Rick and Scotty ran for their room. They changed clothes, then Rick tried to phone Tony at the museum. There was no answer. Constabulary headquarters regretted that Colonel Rojas did not answer the phone in his quarters. They would send a messenger to find him. Rick left the message that he and Scotty were meeting Chada, then the boys hurried to the desk and left a similar message for Tony. A taxi took to the Paranaque. Like most small towns in the Philippines, it consisted of a cathedral, a market, a botica, or drugstore, and a few houses. They found Chada out in front of the cathedral. He was dressed Filipino-style in slacks and sport shirt, and his hair had been recut to a modified crew cut, which was the only cut possible after the Igorot one. They dismissed the taxi. Chada had the jeep. While he drove them through a backwards road, he told them his story. He had pulled off the one-lane road to let Lizada and Nast pass just before he reached Baguio. Following them had been no problem from then on. They went to a house in the outskirts of Baguio, and by asking a few questions of the house servants, after first loosening their tongues with a few pesos, he had found that Lizada was proceeding on to Manila by car the following morning. There was a chance he might give Nas the skull to take care of, Chada admitted, but I do not think so. Lizada is not the kind of man with liking for letting gold out of his hands. So I went to the barber shop and got a haircut, picked up clothes where I left them with a friend of dog meat. Then I drove to Manila and stopped at Malolos. That was a town to the north of Manila, on the road to Baguio. 
Chada had pulled the same trick of letting Lizada overtake him. He comes by and Nasta's with him, Chada continued. I was surprised because Lizada went right to his home. I waited around nearly all day. I could not call because there were no phones handy. Well, tonight he took the black limousine, and he and Nast came to Paranaque. He has the skull. They went to this little barrio where we are going, and went into a Nipa shack. Lazada stayed there with the skull. Nast went off in the limousine. So, what am I to think? What do you think? Rick asked. I think Nast went to get somebody to bring them to Lazada. So I rushed off and called you. Before you came, I saw Nast go by. So now the meeting is being held, and we have to figure out how to get the skull back. Chada reached forward and switched off the jeep's headlights. For an instant, it was very dark. Then, as Rick's eyes became adjusted to the darkness, he saw that the road was visible as a white pathway between the rice paddies. Ahead were the lights of houses. They had reached the barrio where the meeting was to be held. Rick looked around and saw that the sky to the north was aglow with the lights of Manila. They saw a plane take off and realized that they were only a short distance from the airport. Chada pulled off the road into a patch of Nipa palms, went through the palms and parked behind a feathery thicket of bamboo. We will walk to the shack, he said. He took a bolo from under the rear seat of the jeep and tucked it into his belt. The Hindu boy led them a hundred yards down the road, then turned off onto a path. Ahead, alone in a clearing, was a typical Nipa hut. It was built on stilts in the traditional Filipino way, and there was room underneath the supporting posts for a tall man to stand upright. The house itself was square, with walls of woven thatch made from the Nipa palm. The roof was pyramidal and heavily thatched with layer after layer of straw. The floor was of split bamboo, a single layer of springy bamboo strips as wide as a man's thumb laid across a framing of whole bamboo supports. Except that it allowed mosquitoes to roam in and out and gave no bar to lizards or snakes, it was ideal for the climate. The openwork floor allowed the breezes to circulate through the whole house, also, housekeeping was simple. Dust couldn't gather. It just fell through the floor. Filipinos had lived in houses like this for centuries, but the influence of Western civilization was visible in the form of electric lights. It was visible in another way as well, at this particular Nipa hut. Next to it was a shiny limousine, the property of Irenio Lizada. Chada whispered, We get close. Be very quiet and follow me. It was dark enough. Chada led the way, and Rick and Scotty followed. There was little cover, but there was no guard outside the house. Apparently, Lizada and Nass felt quite safe. They did not know how effectively Chada had shadowed them. Chada made his way slowly until they were beside the big limousine. There was a murmur of voices from above, Lizada's predominating. Rick swallowed hard as Chada left the limousine and walked right under the hut but he and Scotty followed, scarcely daring to breathe. It was dark, and he almost knocked over a stack of wooden boxes. Then, under the hut, there was light. Rick had not realized that the bamboo floor was nothing more than a latticework of bamboo strips. He could look right up between them and see the occupants of the room. There was Lazada, of course, 
and Nast, and with them were two Chinese. Nast was talking. Don't worry about delivery. If I say I'll get the skull into Macau, I'll do it. You just worry about the price. Rick recognized the name of Macau. It was the Portuguese colony on the Chinese coast, just below Hong Kong, and had the reputation of being the gathering place for smugglers and gunrunners, Chinese river pirates, and equally unsavory folk. One Chinese spoke in sibilant accented English. The price you ask is too much. The skull is worth its exact weight in gold, at fifty American dollars an ounce. What do we care if it is a very old religious native artifact? That has a value only to the Ifugwe, not to the Chinese. Our customers are not Ifugwes. Rick gasped. Lazada and Nast were intending to sell the skull, just for the gold in it? Lazada put his hand in a box that sat beside him on the floor. The customers you have usually want a bullion gold, that is true. But perhaps you have one very wealthy customer who could use a museum piece of great value. If we could have the skull legally, yes, but it is the only one of its kind. In a few days, the press will have sent its description to every city in the world, because its loss is a good news story. No one in his right mind would buy such an object. I'm afraid he's right, Nas said. We'll have to settle for its value and wait, but that's worth something. Chada pulled Rick's sleeve, then Scotty's. The boys followed him from under the house back to the edge of the clearing, he whispered. See the box? I'm sure that is the skull. Now, do you feel brave? What's your plan? Scotty asked. Chada drew his bolo. Bamboo cuts easy. Two swings and that box falls into our hands. We run like wild men, and they don't catch us. Rick objected. Yeah, except that the skull is way too heavy. We couldn't run with it that easily. They'd catch whoever had it. Scotty nodded. And that box is too small for two people to get a good grip on. We just fall over each other. Could be, Chada agreed, but he was not convinced. He said that there had to be some way to get the box. Rick studied the house as though the sight of it might give him inspiration. The house didn't, but something else did. The purloined letter, he exclaimed suddenly. Remember the story by Edgar Allan Poe? No one found the letter because it was in the most obvious place. It was so obvious that nobody looked there. Then he whispered his daring plan. Scotty chuckled. Wow, that is something. I'll even forgive you for beating me in chess for that one. Chada salaamed. Mighty is the mind of Rick. I'm glad you are on our side. Let's go. They sneaked back to the house and made preparations for the audacious recovery of the box. Chada tested the edge of his bolo, reached up with it, and measured the length of his stroke and where the blade would touch. It would work. He looked at the boys expectantly. Rick knew that bamboo was remarkable stuff. It had great strength against nearly everything except a sharp blade applied across its grain. But it had to be cut cleanly. Also, Chada would have to make two cuts before the box would drop through the floor. On the first cut, Lazada and Nass would be moving. 
They could make it down the stairs before the second cut was made. He shook his head at Chada. Not yet. He motioned to Scotty, and together they examined the stairs, which ran down the outside of the framing. Scotty gestured toward the boxes stacked at one corner of the house. They examined them. The boxes were full of a special kind of seashell used commercially in the Philippines. They were fairly heavy. Working together, they piled a few more boxes on the stairs. Anyone not watching their footing would fall over them. Then Scotty motioned to a stack of bamboo poles just outside the house pilings. He whispered, You help Chada. I'll use one of these. He selected a long one, about two inches in diameter, and held it in both hands like a lance. With Scotty standing beside the stairs, the pole would reach almost through the door of the hut. Scotty nodded. Rick stepped to a position beside Chada and nodded. Chada flexed his muscles, wrapped his fingers tightly around the handle of his bolo, spread his feet, and swung. The steel blade hit the bamboo floor and sliced through, flying in a great arc. There were yells from the men upstairs. Chada swung again as running feet made the floor vibrate. Scotty gave a wild yell and charged like a knight attacking an enemy. The bamboo pole caught Nast in the stomach and drove him back into the hut. The box containing the skull slid and caught. Chada swung again in desperation, and the box dropped through. Rick caught it, and the weight would have driven him to the ground had Chada not given him a hand. They rushed the box to his prearranged hiding place. Then Rick gave a piercing whistle. They all ran, all three of them, in three different directions. Chada headed for the jeep. He ran quietly. Scotty headed south, yelling as he went. Rick ran north, giving an occasional bellow. That was to draw the pursuit away from Chada so he could get to the jeep undisturbed. The pursuit had organized, apparently, because both Nast and Lazada were barking orders. Rick kept yelling, but he was now in the brush. Scotty was yelling, too. Rick pushed his way through the brush and emerged on the bank of a river or estuary of some kind. Beyond was the opposite bank, and there were rows of wooden forms that marked the outline of salt pans. Water was let into the square pools in the early morning, and by nightfall it had evaporated, leaving its salt behind. For a tense moment, Rick waited. Perhaps he was not being followed. Perhaps they had followed Scotty. Then he heard the brush snapping and he knew they were on his trail. He had to keep going. He stepped into the water and went right on until it was over his head. He spluttered, eyes stinging from the salt. The water was brine, already partially evaporated and ready for the salt pans. A few strokes took him to the opposite bank. He climbed out onto the salt pans, clothes dripping, shoes soggy, and he ran. He was almost across the field of salt pans when a shot whistled past him. He bent low and ran faster, remembering that Nast carried a thirty-eight in his shoulder holster. The second shot was closer, but not close enough. He reached the field beyond the salt pans and headed for a coconut grove about three hundred feet ahead. The field was covered with a low-growing vine of some sort. He floundered and tripped and then got back to his feet again, looking over his shoulder. Apparently the pursuers were looking for a way across the water. He couldn't see them. He reached the shadow of the coconut grove and stopped, glad of a chance to wring out his clothes. 
He did so, a garment at a time, watching his trail. In a few moments, he saw two men emerge from a far corner of the salt pans and start across. For a moment, he turned to run, and then an idea struck him and he grinned. There was pretty complete darkness. He could see and be seen in the open, but under the palms he would be invisible from a distance of twenty yards. He didn't need to run. He could wait until the pursuit passed and then walk leisurely to the airport, get a cab, and go home. Chada probably was already there. He thought he had heard the jeep engine start. Even if pursued, Chada could get away all right. The jeep was faster than the limousines on rough roads. Scotty's fate was less certain. If two men were after Rick, the other two probably were after Scotty. They had scattered just for the purpose of splitting the enemy forces and to allow Chada time to get the jeep away. As Rick watched, the two men reached the edge near the salt pans. One produced a flashlight, and they walked along the edge of the salt pans, shining the light on the ground. Rick wondered. Surely they weren't looking for footprints. Both the salt pans and the field were perfectly dry. He wasn't particularly afraid of the flashlight. He would wait until they were close to the palm grove and then move laterally away from them and lie flat on the ground. The light couldn't pick him out from any great distance. The men walked slowly down to the edge of the salt pans until they reached the place where Rick had left the pans and entered the field. Then, as surely as bloodhounds, they followed the route he had taken. He stared amazed. How had they tracked him? Then suddenly he knew. Makahia, the sensitive mimosa. The field was covered with them, and where he had walked, the mimosa's leaves were rolled up tightly. Rick turned and ran through the grove, trying to be silent. He used a beacon from nearby Manila Airport as a guide, and in a moment he saw red lights on the other side of the grove. It was the field. These were the boundary lights. He saw instantly that he was in a bad spot. The only way to go was straight ahead, across the open airport. He would be seen instantly when his pursuers emerged from the grove, and from then on it would be a foot race. There was nothing else to do but go on. He climbed over the airport fence and started for the lights of the administration building a mile away. To conserve his strength and wind, he kept his pace to a dog trot. He crossed one paved strip and cast a look behind him in time to see the pursuers climb the fence. A yell told him he had been seen. He started to zigzag, anticipating a bullet. His spine tingled and there was a crawling sensation between his shoulder blades. But when the shot did come, it was such a wide miss that it did not even give an instinctive duck. Somewhere down the line, a big plane was getting ready to take off. The pilot was checking his magnetos, revving up his engines. He searched for lights as he ran and saw them over a mile down the field. There was a strata cruiser, probably bound for America. Then he saw the runway ahead and realized it would be a race to see whether or not he got across before the plane reached that point. The lights told him that the plane was already moving. He lengthened his stride. He had a choice. He could stop and wait until the big plane passed, or he could run for it and hope to beat it. If he stopped, it would give his pursuers a chance to catch up. He ran faster, still breathing easily, but there were signs that his wind was giving out. He cast anxious glances down the field. The big plane was rolling, its engines roaring. 
He tried to gauge the point where it would be airborne, but that was too hard. It should be in the air by the time it reached him, but he couldn't be sure of that. The runway was only yards ahead now. He sprinted. The plane roared down at him. Then he was on the runway, realizing he would not be across in time. In sudden terror, he threw himself flat, just as the big plane lifted. The wheels were only a few feet above him as it passed over. Then he was on his feet, running again, weak from the certainty of a moment ago that he was done for. But the administration building was only a short distance now, and he found the strength to keep going. He ran past astonished airport personnel and made his way through the crowd that had come to see the flight off and leapt into a taxi just ahead of the Filipino gentleman who was about to enter. Get going, he panted. Hurry! The driver responded with a burst of speed that snapped Rick back against the cushions. He turned and watched through the rear window, but he couldn't see his pursuers. He had made it. Chapter 20. Surprise Package Colonel Felix Rojas fingered the eagle on one shoulder. It took me thirty years to become a colonel, he said. If you are wrong, Colonel Rojas will be Private Rojas by morning. You know that. If Lazada is at home, Rick repeated, it will mean that he hasn't found the Golden Skull. If he's not at home and doesn't come home, it will mean he has it. You need not worry, Sahib Colonel. Rick had a plenty bright idea. Lazada will not find the skull, believe me, Chada assured him. Chada and Scotty had beaten Rick to the hotel and had found both Rojas and Tony Briati waiting as a result of the messages the boys had left. Chada had gotten away easily, and he had lingered in Paranaque, parked in the shadows, until he saw Scotty go by. Then he had picked him up. When Rick did not appear, they went to the hotel to wait for word. Scotty had ditched his pursuers easily by climbing a mango tree and waiting until they passed. He was more at home in the woods at night than any of them, including Chada. Tony Briati asked, Does your father know what kind of chances you take, Rick? Rick grinned. He's been along on a few expeditions, remember. He knows we can take care of ourselves. So do I now. Colonel, I have faith in the boy's theory. I think we had better go to Lazada's. Rojas nodded. Even if it means being broken, the chance is worth it to hang something on that man. Our republic is young. It cannot tolerate men like him in public office. Without proof, we cannot touch him. But if the proof is there... It will be, Rick said confidently. Rojas picked up the phone and asked for a number. He got his connection, gave his number, and asked for Captain Luchauco. To the captain, he gave orders. A platoon was to meet him at Lazada's in 15 minutes, no earlier and no later. Then he phoned Dr. Okola and requested that he also be at Lazada's. No. Colonel Rojas said to the Spindrift group. Let us go. Ten minutes later, they got out of the colonel's car in front of Lazada's house. A Sikh guard started to open the door for them, but Chada stopped him and spoke rapidly in Hindi. The guard replied, He is here, and also is his car, Chada said. 
Colonel Rojas consulted his watch. We'll wait here. The minutes ticked by in silence until the headlights of a truck appeared. The truck pulled up and a young captain got out of the front seat. He saluted. Rojas gave him crisp orders in Tagalog, which the captain relayed to the men in the truck. They climbed down with a minimum of noise and went to surround the house. Now, Rojas said, let us visit Mr. Lazada. He pushed open the door and marched up the front stairs, the spindrift group close behind. At the top of the stairs, the constabulary colonel brushed aside a houseboy and strode into the living room, where Lazada sat with Nast. The two leapt to their feet. Lazada turned red. What is the meaning of this? he demanded. Colonel Rojas bowed. I regret to inform you that you are under arrest on charges of grand larceny, attempting to sell gold illegally, and conspiracy to smuggle gold out of the country. Lazada snarled. I'll have you broken for this, you fool. I don't know what you're talking about. I think you do. These American gentlemen have told me quite a story. I'm sure of it. And whose word do you take? That of your countrymen and senior official, or the words of these foreign adventurers? Theirs, Rojas said. I will accept from you the custody of a certain golden skull, stolen by you from the Ifugues. Lazada had recovered his composure. He chuckled. I have no golden skull. You are free to search, even without a warrant, Colonel. Thank you. Please lead the way to your garage. Certainly, but you will find nothing there but my car. Lazada led the way to the back of the house and down a flight of stairs to the garage. If the sight of constabulary troopers with ready carbines bothered him, he didn't show it. But Nast obviously was worried. He kept casting glances at the boys. Better give the colonel that shoulder gun you missed me with earlier tonight, Rick told him. You might hurt yourself with it. Colonel Rojas held out his hand. Give it to me. Nast did. In the garage was a limousine and Lazada waved at it. As I told you, nothing here but my car. And a golden skull, Rick said. He opened the trunk and reached in for the box. Lazada screamed with sudden fear and rage. He leapt for Rick. He met Scotty's fist and sat down hard. Colonel Rojas had been sweating profusely. Now, at the sight of the golden skull, he took out his handkerchief wiped his face and smiled contentedly. We will need a new assistant secretary now, he said happily, and we'll ship Mr. Nast back to America as an undesirable alien. The authorities there will take him into custody. Have you found it? Where is the skull? someone called. Dr. Okola came running up the driveway and with him, in immaculate white linens, was Nangolat. The group sat in Dr. Ercola's office at the museum. Outside, constabulary troopers were on guard. Inside, a fabulous collection of gold and silver artifacts, dominated by the golden skull, received the admiring attention of the Spindrift group. 
Colonel Rojas, Angel Manotoc, and Dr. Cola, with Nangolat as the lecturer. When he had finished describing the various objects and their uses, the Fugue said, And now I must explain. I am here because I gave myself up to Dr. Okola. He, in turn, will hand me over to the police. I asked only that I be permitted to examine the treasures. Tony Briati shook his head. I don't understand. You're intelligent, you're well-educated, and on the road to becoming a scientist. Why'd you do it? Nangola's broad face was sad but composed. How can I explain? I almost killed my good friend on hell. I attacked innocent American scientists who had no evil intentions toward my people. I goaded the young men of Anawe'e into war against the wishes of their elders. It was only because my gods watched over me that I do not have your blood on my hands. But how can I explain? His dark eyes pleaded for understanding. You cannot know what it is to be in a Fugue or an Igorot. In America, you respect your primitives, your Indians. But here, we are just aborigines, primitive animals, eaters of dog. We are sneered at. We are despised. To Americans, we are curiosities. We wear breechcloths and funny hats that we use for pockets. Nongulat, Dr. Cole exclaimed. I never suspected you felt like that. I thought we always treated you as we did any other student. You were the ones who treated me as a man, Nangolat admitted. You and Angel. But when I worked with you in tracing down the golden skull and what it meant to my people, something happened. The more we learned, the more I resented the attitudes of the others, those who despised the Afugwe as dog-eating animals. I believed that in the Golden Skull we had proof that the Afugues were better than any of you, that our civilization was older. I lost my civilization. I forgot my friends. I could only think that here was proof of the greatness of the Afugwe, and that the Americans were coming to take it away. But we said that the artifacts would remain here, Tony Piratti reminded him. We told Dr. Ocola we wouldn't ask for permission to take him out of the country. Yes, but I was worried. I went to Lazata to plead with him to forbid you to take them under any circumstances, and he told me he was helpless. He said that the American government would insist on getting the treasures of my people, and that our own government would have to yield because we need American financial aid. Of all the rotten lies, Rick exclaimed angrily. Yes, but he was an official of our government, and I believed him. Then he goaded me. He said that only an Afugwe would allow such a thing to happen, because the Afugues were less than men. Men would protect their treasures. I was emotionally upset already. His goading drove me berserk. I went truly mad. So I acted as I did. Tell them what happened at Marawe'e, Okola said gently. Dr. Briati convinced me that he was not trying to steal our treasure. That is, he almost convinced me. He did convince our priests. But Lazada came, and he said the American ambassador was already demanding custody of the treasure as soon as it was found. You know what happened then. We sure do. Scotty said. Then the jeep got away, and later the plane came. 
We did not keep attacking because many of our young men had lost heart. They couldn't see the sense of rushing into muzzles of your rifles over some treasure they knew nothing about. I had worked them up to the point of attacking once, but I could not do it again. Then the plane dropped the sack. We did not know what was in it, except that it must be part of the treasure. Lazada carried it to his car. I followed and demanded the bag. He said he had no bag, although it was in plain sight. He was smiling. He said the plane got all the bags. He didn't have any. I saw at once what he was doing. He was going to take the bag and pretend that he had never seen it, and it would be the word of a group of poor Fugue natives against the word of a great official. I saw red. I reached for him, and Nast struck me with his gun. Angola rubbed his head. He knocked me out, and he knocked sense into me. I walked to Bontoc and took the bus south. Now I am ready to be punished. Rick was deeply touched by Nangola's recital. He remembered how favorably impressed they had been that first day when they thought he was on hell. Speaking for myself, he offered, ungrateful to Nangolat for a warm reception at Banawe'e and for the interesting visit to the rice terraces. Scotty took the cue. As for me, I haven't had so much fun in a fight since that free-for-all at Canton Charlie's in Hong Kong. Chada bowed. I also represent an ancient Asian people. I am very grateful to Nongolat for the fine demonstration of how a Fugues fight. It is very different from the Hindu method. The three boys looked at Tony. He had suffered the most at Nongolat's hands. Nongolat had tried to kill him, then had him kidnapped, and had intended to take his head. Tony smiled. And I am grateful to Nangalat for personally conducting me to Bonawe'e and for putting on such an interesting series of rituals and dances. Anhel Monotok went to Nangalat and took his hand. Can a Filipino be less of a friend than an American? It was too bad I fell on my head and almost fractured my skull. How nice it was of you, Nangalat, to pretend to be me so I would not lose face with the Americans by not appearing to work for them. There were tears in the Ifugwe's eyes. What a magnificent group of storytellers you are! Colonel Rojas grinned. Sounded like the truth to me, Nangolat. And if anyone wants to know what kind of men the Ifugwe's are, send them to me. I led Mountain Province warriors against the Japanese. They attacked tanks barehanded. They fought like fiends. They made me proud to be a Filipino. Tony Briati picked up the golden skull. We have a lot of work to do, Nangolat. We'll need your help, and all of us will have to testify against Lazada. Golly, that's right, Rick said. What a nuisance that'll be. We're going to have to be around here for weeks. Not for that long, Colonel Rojas promised. This is one case that will be tried in a hurry, but you will have to stay a while. You will be my guests. There's a lot of the Philippines you haven't seen. We might even be able to stir up a little excitement for you. No thanks, Rick said. Sorry, no, Chada said. We need peace and quiet, Scotty said. Tony laughed. Don't believe them. They may stay quiet until tomorrow, but I doubt it. What'd you have in mind? I'd like to take them to Mindoro Island south of here to hunt wild Cebu. 
In case you don't know, those are water buffalo. They rate as the most dangerous game animal in Asia. Sounds too exciting for me, Rick said. But in later years, when the Ifugwe expedition was mentioned, Rick, Scotty, and Chada always talked much more about the hunting on Mindoro than they did about their encounter with the Ifugues. And they were prouder of the Sabu heads in the study than of the Ifugwe spears that had been thrown at them and brought back by Angel as souvenirs. The End We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvila audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Rick Brandt theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>